Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Julia Lee spent most of her formative and some of her adult years searching for herself and her place in a racially stratified America, trying to understand where she, as a daughter of Korean immigrants, fit into a black and white racially constructed hierarchy. Her search led her on a journey through rage and shame. Along the way, she delves deeply into how her biases have sometimes supported the oppression she abhors and what she describes as the life-saving advice that has led to her grace. Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Julia Lee is a Korean-American writer, scholar, and teacher. She is an associate professor of English at Loyola Marymount University, where she teaches African-American and Caribbean literature. Her previous books include Our Gang, A Racial History of the Little Rascals, and The American Slave Narrative and the Victorian Novel. Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, is her new memoir. And Julia Lee joins us now from Los Angeles. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. I think it would be uh, good to ground our, the listeners in how you grew up, to describe your family and the whole vibe around that so we get a sense of where you were coming from. Sure. Um, so my parents are Korean immigrants. They were born, um, my father was born in North Korea, my mother was born in the South, and they were born in the period of the Korean War, so have very distinct memories of um, the violence and the trauma of that. Um, they moved to the United States around 1970, met here, got married in New Jersey, and then drove cross-country to settle in Los Angeles because um, of the growing Korean community here, um, and then also the opportunity, more economic opportunities. Um, I was born in Los Angeles in 1976. My sister was born uh, about a year and a half later. My parents at that point, my father owned a liquor store in Inglewood, which was then a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, I came of age um, during the LA uprising. At that point, my parents had purchased a fried chicken restaurant called Pioneer, and that was located in Hawthorne, which was another um, very mixed, very diverse neighborhood. And their store was actually um, torched during the LA uprising. Um, they were able to salvage their business. They did not go bankrupt. But that, again, became a pivotal moment of my in my coming of age, just realizing that, you know, I knew I was Korean American. I felt a great deal of affinity for the um, situation of other people of color in this country. And yet the LA uprising pitted Korean Americans against Black Americans in the media. And I felt torn um, between the experiences of my parents and then those of people my age, people of color my age. But where you are now is not where you were when you were growing up uh, uh, in that uh, with your folks. Um, you were very angry um, 
trying to figure out, you know, what was actually happening. You didn't have language for it. Um, but one of the things that you identified was invisibility. Right. I mean, it's incredibly confusing. And I think this happens to a lot of minoritized people is, you know, especially when you're young and you're trying to determine your identity and then you don't see where you fit in, especially, you know, in media, in history, in culture, in school. Um, you know, I just felt like, oh, well, I'm not white and I'm not black and I know I'm treated differently and as foreign. And most often I'm not I'm not acknowledged at all. So in fact, I'm peripheral, I'm tertiary, I'm um, not even, you know, noticed by the majority. Um, and so I think this is one reason I learned to sort of make myself small and to um, diminish myself or to see myself as unimportant, um, as having nothing to say. And then as I got older and I suddenly felt, but I, you know, that I had so much frustration and rage and a sense that I could not express it. And then just bottling it up inside made me even more unhappy and, um, yeah, combustible. I mean, I really talked about how, you know, the kind of uprising, the racial uprising in 1992, I mean, it really paralleled this sense within myself that I too suddenly just could not keep all my rage bottled in at the injustice in this country. But by the time you got to the sophisticated understanding um, uh, of what was happening in, in a racially hierarchical America, you um, were trying to figure out, well, if if I'm not seen, if I, and I'm mad about that, maybe the best thing for me to be is just be white. Um, yeah. I just let me just be close to white, um, and that might, you know, help me fit in somewhere. And I want to give people a sense of your voice on the page. So uh, I'd like you to read from the section called Rage. Your book is divided into three sections, and Rage is the first, uh, beginning on page 27. So my dad grabbed one of the dolls off the shelf and said, how about this one? I shook my head. No way. What about this one? He asked, taking a different one off the shelf. No. My dad laughed. You don't want any of these dolls? He seemed amused. Cabbage Patch Kids were expensive, and it was a huge deal that my parents were willing to buy me one. But I was adamant. I'd rather go home empty-handed than have a black doll. The memory now fills me with horror, yet I recall with utter clarity my train of thought. If I couldn't have a Korean doll, I would be okay with a Japanese doll. If I couldn't have a Japanese doll, I would be okay with a white doll. But if there were no white dolls, I would rather have no doll at all. These black dolls at the store were a confirmation of the racial hierarchy I'd internalized. The black dolls were discount dolls, the ones no one wanted, the ones that were still available and thus inferior. The desirable dolls were the white dolls, and they were all sold out. I did not want a secondhand doll. I was reminded of this experience years later when learning about Mamie and Ke Kenneth Clark's famous doll experiment, which was cited as part of the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education. The Clarks were a husband and wife team of child psychologists who conducted a series of tests on black children, asking them to choose between white and brown dolls based on questions ranging from, give me the doll that you like to play with the best, and give me the doll that looks bad, to give me the doll that is a nice color, or give me the doll that looks like you. Most of the children attended segregated schools and most demonstrated a preference for the white doll over the brown. Occasionally, if asked to point out which doll looked most like themselves, some children pointed to the brown doll and said, I'm an N-word. Others would refuse to answer the question, cry, 
or run out of the room. LeClerc saw this as concrete evidence of the dehumanizing effects of segregation, which had so convinced the Black children of their own inferiority as to cause long-lasting psychological damage. White supremacist culture had taught these children to hate themselves, to correlate their skin color with negative traits, and to internalize their own objection. They, too, preferred the white dolls. As a child growing up in the 1980s, nearly 40 years after the abolition of de jure's segregation, I still implicitly understood that Black stood at the bottom rung of the American racial hierarchy. Faced with a choice between Black and white, I would always choose white. That's my guest, Julia Lee, reading from her new memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. Now, uh, went on, evolved from the rage into the shame phase, which was very interesting. Um, I think it's something that a lot of uh, people of color relate to. You can't explain it. You just... Um, afflicted with shame for no apparent reason because it doesn't feel like you're um, who you're supposed to be or where you're supposed to be in, in the society. Talk about that a little bit because I think it's confusing to people who are not, who don't share that experience. Right. No. And, you know, that, that experience with the Cabbage Patch dolls, I mean, it, it fills me with shame today because I can't believe I used to think this and think it so, so adamantly. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized, well, of course I was supposed to think that way. This is the racial imaginary. It's everywhere around me. Everything in this culture is reinforcing this idea that there's a racial hierarchy and that if you want to be treated better, then the people who got to be treated better were always white. And that is something that being in college, growing up, getting educated, um, made me realize it's only, you know, as an adult that I started to recognize that this shameful thing, which was the sense that I wasn't enough, that I was deficient, that I was somehow inferior, that this had been brainwashing. And that in fact, even the phrase, you know, wanting to be white, which makes me want to vomit when I say it now. Um, but even that phrase wanting to be white, is false because as one of my friends who's a black feminist pointed out to me, she's like, Julia, you didn't want to be white. Nobody wants to be white because honestly, what's so great about being white? Nothing. It's just that in our society and in our culture, being white means you get to be treated as human. And that is really all I and so many people of color want is that we just want to be treated as human beings. And unfortunately, when we look around, the only people who get to be treated as full human beings are often white. And so it's not whiteness we want. We just want to be treated with human humanity and humaneness. One of the, uh, you've said that you had been working on this book for a while, but is really what happened in 2020, um, obviously the pandemic and then George Floyd's murder that just sort of put it all, the pieces, started putting the pieces together for you um, in writing this memoir because it felt like a little bit of repeat of what you'd seen um, in your teen years in 1992, uh, first of all. Um, but also, it just was causing you to examine what you just explained about where you were, about what whiteness really meant, you know, not uh, – it, it meant an acceptance that you were striving for that wasn't going to happen as long as you were Korean and a person of color. So um, explain that a little bit more. Yeah, it did. I mean, 
2020 really felt like a moment of deja vu. And, you know, it had been more than 30 years since the LA uprising. And yet, you know, a lot of the same rhetoric seemed to be coming up, you know, this idea of, once again, I mean, the sense of you know, the rising white supremacy, the sense that, you know, anti-Black brutality was continuing and was being videotaped and yet nothing was happening, the frustration and protest that was occurring. And for me, you know, as a teacher, I had kind of deluded or convinced myself that things were better and that, you know, I was in a position now where I could at least teach this material and teach my students. You know, many of my students are students of color now and being a woman of color in the classroom and speaking to them about their experiences, you know, made me feel like maybe there was more change occurring than actually was happening or that I had underestimated the strength of evil, basically, of the, of the opposition. And so when you saw white supremacy, I mean, again, you know, incited by the president at that time, just rearing its ugly head, and then the rise in anti-Asian um, racism with the pandemic, I just felt like, oh my God, has nothing changed? We're back in the exact same position as we were before. Um, and I felt despair. And at the same time, I thought, yeah, but I'm not 15 and voiceless now. I do have a voice in the classroom, through my writing, um, through my friendships, through my relationships, and that this is a moment where we can really step up as a group against white supremacy. And instead of being divided against each other based on our skin color or the sense that we have, you know, com competing, um, you know, experiences of, of, of oppression, that we should just toss that out completely and say, no, we are not going to be divided against one another. And, you know, there was an element of hope. How do you place the anti-Asian racial attacks within the context of, of your observations about your identity evolution, I would say? Yeah. You know, I think that um, the anti-Asian attacks, I mean, it's sort of like we're invisible until we're hyper-visible and we are convenient allies to white supremacy, you know, for things like, for example, the the movement to get rid of affirmative action. You know, it's it's sort of convenient to use Asian Americans as a quote unquote, you know, oppressed group who are being unfairly treated, um, you know, and, and and pitting us against, say, black and brown groups. And yet we're only convenient to white supremacy when it's expedient for white supremacy. But then as soon as we're no longer convenient, it's like we're thrown to the wolves. We're, you know, so with um, COVID, it's like, oh, well, you know, you're useful to white supremacy until you're no longer. And then suddenly we're the alien, we're the infected, we're the foreign, we um, are bringing this disease in and we need to be cast out or beaten or, I mean, just terrible, terrible things had happened. And it was so interesting because in the early part of this anti-Asian upswing, I mean, myself and all my friends and all my Asian American students, we talked about this openly because it was everywhere. You could tell the change in the the temperature and and in the racial climate. And yet it was not picked up by the mainstream media for a very long time. And I would say even belatedly um, with the shootings in Atlanta. Um, and suddenly it was like, okay, well, this isn't this is an episode of racism and murder that's so over the top, so spectacular that we have to deal with it. And even then, it was infuriating to hear, you know, the the head of the FBI saying that, you know, they did not think this was racially related, that, you know, um, I think the head of the police or the police spokesman saying something like, oh, you know, 
the perpetrator, the murderer was just having a bad day. Yeah. And they, they also didn't didn't identify it as a hate crime in, in at all. Yes, exactly. And said they didn't think hate was behind it, even though, you know, I would say like 80 percent were Asian women. Many of them were Korean women who were, you know, my my mother's age, you know, their grandparents, mothers. And the sense that once again, even when they're clearly being targeted, that it's dismissed as not racial in nature. It's just another way in which Asian Asian people are are marginalized and erased. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Julia Lee, author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Well, if our listeners haven't gotten it, you're, you are um, using your personal stories as a way to really talk about some broader issues of gender and privilege and the racial hierarchy, as we've said, and um, also white supremacy. Um, and I wanted to uh, make that clear as I get you to explain how the title of your book came about. This was advice to you from well-known author and Harvard professor, and Black scholar Jamaica Kincaid. So where did biting the hand uh, come from uh, in terms of how she told you about it? Jamaica Kincaid was my advisor and mentor when I was at at Harvard for my PhD. And she was such an influential and inspiring figure because if anybody has met her, I mean, she really is fearless. I mean, she jokes about how she's scared of mice, but is she scared of white supremacists? Absolutely not. She says what she believes and she doesn't apologize for her opinions or for her presence. And I remember one of the pieces of advice she always gave me when I was, you know, in my 20s was, Julia, you must bite the hand that feeds you. Otherwise, you will never know who you really are. And this is a piece of advice I've heard her give others too. And it just, you know, initially I was sort of like, okay, I don't really understand what that means. But, you know, as I got older, I realized, yeah, I do. I have to stop being so grateful and deferential to authority and especially to white supremacy because it has indoctrinated me or brainwashed me into thinking you're lucky just to be in America. You're lucky just to be at Harvard. You're lucky to just be in these privileged spaces. Don't speak up you must not bite the hand that feeds you. We have fed you. We have welcomed you. And Kincaid is like, no, you have to speak up against injustice and you have to speak up against authority, you know, what violent authority. You cannot let this idea of, oh, but I owe them or, oh, I need to be a grateful subject to prevent you from being the person you are, from standing up and being independent. And so when I was writing the book, I just kept going back to that phrase and thinking about, how so much of my growth has been stepping away from the quiet, the grateful, um, the pliant person. And this is something I think many Asian Americans are familiar with this, you know, don't make a fuss, don't speak up, keep your head down and realizing, no, we have to bite back that there is injustice and we have to stand up and speak for ourselves and bite back against injustice. By the end of the book, you've moved uh, to grace from rage and shame and an embrace of both and. Now, what does that mean about how you see the world and your place in it now? Yeah, no, that's another moment of enlightenment or awakening for me is that even though I raged against the black-white binary in this country, you know, which made me feel canceled out, 
that I was still perpetuating it by raging against it. And that really I had to look outside of that binary and to realize there are so many of us who are not captured by black and white. So many of us who have different identities and and have multiple identities. Um, and this is something that, you know, I credit one of my colleagues, former colleagues, who's an indigenous scholar, you know, she stopped me one day and was like, you know, you're driving yourself crazy. You're tying yourself into knots trying to figure out how race works in this country. And what you have to realize is that race itself is a colonial concept. It's a white supremacist concept. So even the very ideas of black versus white, those racial markers are white supremacist concepts and that you need to move outside of that structure in order to free yourself. And so for my colleague, Jane Hafen, um, who's a member of Taos Pueblo, she was saying, you know, indigenous peoples, we think of identity in alternate ways. You know, we don't think in terms of race and ethnicity. Our ideas are based in kinship and belonging and relationships. And for me, that was the moment where I thought, oh my God, I'm canceling myself out by thinking either or, when really I should be thinking in terms of both and. That, you know, in many ways as an Asian American woman, you know, I do experience discrimination and racism, but I also experience, you know, privilege. I am also in spaces that are closed to other people and that I can be both racially oppressed and privileged and that that's not wrong. That's just the way things are and that it also gives me the freedom to move through these different spaces and to see myself beyond the binary and to maybe even see ways that I can use my privilege in order to help those who are experiencing injustice. Hmm. What do you want readers to take away? I spent so much of my life hating myself, hating other people, being angry at the system, being angry at my own mother who, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, in my book. And, you know, I think the the most touching email I got recently was from a woman who's in her 80s and she's not Asian American. She's Jewish, Eastern European Jewish. And she was talking about how the book helped her finally forgive her own mother, who was a refugee, who lived through, you know, World War II and how the anger and frustration and traumatic intergenerational trauma that had been passed down to her was something that she couldn't make sense of. But then reading my book, which was about, you know, my Korean experience and my mother's experience with the Korean War also made her realize there are commonalities and that she could finally, at the age of 80, forgive her own mother for some of the things that she had done to her daughter, which were a result of war trauma minoritization, immigration, you know, all of these things that so many of us suffer with. So that is what I hope people are able to get from the book. All right, Julia Lee, the stories are rich and powerful, and I thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Julia Lee is the author of Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. The book is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Ashley Sabroto. 
Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 